Did you read every word of the book? That was the first and only question on the test. I was in Dr. Armstead's uh, American History 3001, a class that had, I think, approximately 423 assigned reading books. And, um, and okay, I may have exaggerated, but not much. Um, we had learned fairly early on in this class, the students, we had realized that all we had to do was skim the books and just do enough reading to get an A on the quiz. KG Dr. Armistead realized what we were doing, and so he issued the most unfair, wicked quiz of all time. It said merely, did you read every word of the book? Having skimmed the book only, I had to answer no, and I got a zero. The book in question was Frederick Douglass's last autobiography, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. By the way, in a fit of mercy, the professor told us that we had two days. If in two days we would read every word of the book, our zeros could become 100. So I then was motivated, and I went back and read the book. And I discovered a work that is full of the most stunning ideas. I, I want to share some with you, but first, a brief biography. Frederick Douglass, one of the great thinkers of the 19th century, was self-educated. He could only read because somebody broke the law to teach him to read. Uh, as a slave, he was beaten abused until he escaped Maryland and made his way to the north. He was brought to faith in Jesus Christ by a white preacher. Uh, he became a best-selling author. A, this is my summary of him, a man of integrity, tenacity, grace, brilliance, wisdom, compassion, and humility. Remarkable fellow. Douglas was vilified. This is interesting. He was really, really picked on by other abolitionists because while, while he hated slavery as much as they did, he loved slavers because of Jesus Christ. He was one of the important influencers of Abraham Lincoln. Here are a few great quotes from his book, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. Listen to these. I would unite with anybody to do right and nobody to do wrong. To suppress free speech, Douglass said, is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. No man can put a chain about the ankle of his fellow man without finding the other end fastened about his own neck. Isn't that well said? The guy, the guy could write. The man who is right is a majority. He who has God and conscience on his side has a majority against the universe. Find out, Frederick Douglass, find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have the exact measure of the injustice and wrong which will be imposed on them. Isn't that great? Along with, along with Harriet Beecher Stowe's bombshell, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is horribly misrepresented in our time, um, Frederick Douglass's book, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, did something remarkable. Those two books really did something that has blessed the world for 200 years now. Douglass reminded Christians that the Bible and slavery are not compatible. Paragraphs like, like this one shocked the English-speaking world. From the life and times of Frederick Douglass, the dealers and the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit, and they mutually help each other. The dealer, talking about the slave trader, gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit, and the pulpit, in turn, covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other, devils dressed in angels' robes, and hell presented as the semblance of paradise. Close quote. Told you you could write. As Douglas points out, there were people in the 19th century who felt that Christianity, like, uh, like Islam or, or Hinduism, has a caste system where slavery is acceptable, even promoted. And I increasingly hear that same argument today. Oh, I don't hear it from Christians today. I hear it from atheists. Here's how it goes down. People who are set against Jesus, they trot out those old practices of 19th century Christians as a foil. And then they say, look, 
Scripture condones slavery, and thus Christianity must be eradicated because it is evil. All right, so let's take that on. As part of our Apology Acceptance Series, let's take the challenge. Along with our forefather, Mr. Douglas, let's ask, does Christianity actually condone slavery? Let's start with the Old Testament. Old Testament slavery. Slavery is central to the Old Testament story. Open your Bible to Exodus chapter 1, second book of your Bible, chapter 1. In Exodus, we learn that Israel, Israel knew slavery like, like no other ancient people did. And by the way, that's the headline um, in your bulletin. Uh, if you're here in the auditorium, if you're online, what a joy to be with you. Your host has given you a link, and you should see it there. Uh, Israel knew slavery like no other ancient people. Let's read the beginning of that dark history. Uh, Exodus chapter 1, start at verse 8. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithon and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they, the Egyptians, oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly. Barry Beitzel does a wonderful job summarizing this transition uh, to the Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. Look, look what he, he says. The biblical, historical, and archaeological data are best served by theorizing it was a Hyksos monarch, I'll explain that in a moment, who ceded this choice parcel of land, Goshen, to Joseph's family. You can read about that in Genesis 47. Uh, the Hyksos were a Semitic people. Uh, that just means they were racially relatives of, of the Israelites. They were from the same Semitic branch from Shem. Um, the Hyksos were the rulers of Egypt for, uh, for five dynasties. There's a period called the Second Intermediate Period. It's between the end of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt and the beginning of the New Kingdom of Egypt. And that's when the Hyksos ruled. And he's saying that it was one of those monarchs who gave the land of Goshen to, um, to Joseph. Here's how my old professor put it. In this affluent era, that intermediate period, Joseph emerged as prime minister of Egypt. And Jacob, his dad, whose name was also Israel, and his son sojourned in Egypt. That's about 1876 B.C. Everything was great for Israel, for Egypt, until the new king came to power, Right? A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power. Beitzel explains. Look what he says. Now, according to such a theory, this new king of Exodus 1.8 would have been one of the native Egyptian monarchs of the new kingdom who, as part of his Hyksos purge, resolutely refused to recognize the validity of that Goshen land grant, discerning in the Israelites a multitude who might very well join with his Asiatic enemies in war. This new king, moreover, acted quickly to enslave God's people. Got it? Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt. His dad, Israel, moves the whole clan to Egypt under an official land grant. Everything's great until the new kingdom of Egypt rose to power. Now, it wasn't quite that simple and short. You see, the first native Egyptian to try and overthrow the Hyksos, Israel's relatives, was this guy, uh, Sekeninra. Sekeninra. He proclaimed himself the pharaoh of the 17th dynasty. He was from upper Egypt down here, and he led a native Egyptian uprising against the Hyksos. It did not go very well for him. Uh, he died and did not manage to move the Hyksos at all. In fact, his mummy shows that he took a battle axe to the forehead. Ouch. Um, so the next guy that rose up, a relative of his, was this guy, Kamos. Kamos also died trying to eliminate the, uh, the Hyksos. But finally, Kamos' little baby brother, Ahmos, succeeded. 
and this very famous relief uh, in Egypt. He took over Memphis, the capital of Lower Egypt. Throughout the Hyksos, this relief describes what happens and almost established the new kingdom. He reunited Upper and Lower Egypt. Now, given all that, can you understand why Ahmos might have had a racial grudge against the Israelites because they seem racially very similar to those Hyksos. They prospered under the Hyksos pharaohs. It, it appears to me that Ahmos chose not to respect the Joseph history because he had experienced such pain racially in his own family. I'm not saying it's healthy or right, but Ahmos's sin is understandably fueled by his, his racial resentment. Now, like all racists, what he does is he carries the wounds of the past and he spreads his venom toward anyone who is even remotely associated with his enemy. Here's the big truth in all this. This Israeli enslavement was absolutely unique in the world. Listen, prior to what Ahmos did to the Israelites, no other people group in all the world had ever been subjected to hereditary, enforced, national, illegal slavery. Look, let me, let me show you, the, in, in contrast to the Israel, let me show you the human norms of slavery all the way up through the Bronze Age, okay? This is the norm of human slavery. It was not racial. It was, it was hardly ever racial. There were buyouts. In nearly every case, a slave was allowed in every culture to buy their way out of slavery. It didn't happen very often, but it was legally allowed. Uh, slavery was almost always a result of warfare. You would conquer a people, you would take them, make them slaves. Sadly, slaves had absolutely no rights, and slavery was very harsh, okay? So this world norm is, is bad. It's bad enough. But what the Egyptians did was they enslaved an entire people group with national, hereditary, enforced, illegal slavery. And I think that explains why God had Moses codify laws about slaves in order to protect slaves. In contrast to both the world norm and the extreme of Israel and Egypt, let's look at God's laws regarding slavery in Israel. First thing you need to know. I know this sounds weird, but people often sold themselves into slavery. And since that happened, Leviticus 25 made that a legal contract. Look, Leviticus 25. If your brother among you becomes destitute and sells himself to you, you must not force him to do slave labor. They, Jews, are not to be sold as slaves because they are my servants that I brought out of the land of Egypt. You are not to rule over them harshly, but fear your God. Because of Israel's slavery history, no Jew is ever to be sold as a slave. That trade, look, look at the parallelism. That trade, the trade in slaves, is actually antithetical to fear of God. And, and harsh labor is forbidden. Harsh treatment is forbidden. The person who chooses to be indentured must be treated well. Further, God declares that slaves have got to be released after six years. Did you get that? After six years, they must be released unless they ask to remain. Look at Exodus 21. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then the seventh, he's to leave as a free man without paying anything. Remember I told you the world norm was that somebody could buy their way out of slavery? They didn't pay. No, no, the Bible, totally different, totally unique. They don't pay anything. They just go free after six years. Down to verse 5. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, my children, I do not want to leave as a free man. His master is to bring him to the judges and, and then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master will pierce his ear with an awl and he will serve his master for life. I bet you didn't know that a pierced ear on a man is a sign of lifetime slavery. Keep that in mind. Um, 
kidding. The, the, same, the same rule, by the way, the same rule was applied to non-Hebrews as well. Uh, Leviticus 25 goes on. You can make them, talking about non-Hebrews here, you can also make them slaves for life. Now, God doesn't say you have to or should make a person a lifetime slave. He merely declares an Israeli citizen can do so. Remember, all of this is at the request of the person. Even in calling them slaves, God is looking out for the person. Each human is made in his image. Each one matters to him. In a world filled with nasty slavery, with Israel's own experience as a unique, painful backdrop, God forbids retribution. He forbids forced slavery. This was singular in the world. Now, I'd like the time to, to read and dissect all the scriptures. Let me just list for you the, the rest of these exclusive laws that were given by God to the Jews regarding slavery. Um, abused slaves were given immediate freedom. You broke a slave's tooth. She was free. He was free. Uh, slaves' religion's freedom was protected. There was a protection of religious freedom, even if they chose not to follow Yahweh. Escaped slaves. If a slave escaped, they could live freely without retribution. There was no hunting of slaves. Victorious. Remember how I told you most slavery in the ancient world came out of came out of uh, warfare, and you would you would take particularly women captive. That was forbidden for Israel. Rape and enslavement was forbidden. In fact, a Jew could not take a woman unless he married her, protected her under a legal contract. And even then, he couldn't marry her unless she had had one month to grieve the, the loss of her, of her country and her people. All right, so let's look at all this in context. I put in your notes a chart to try and help us keep this straight. Okay, so Egypt held Israel in a uniquely horrible kind of slavery, racial, permanent, harsh, and illegal, violating a government contract. Um, the world norm... Slavery was not racial. People were allowed by us. It was harsh. There were no slave rights. It was often the result of warfare. In Israel, totally different. It's a six-year legal contract. It is permanent only when the slave chooses that. Abuse voids the contract. Religious freedom is for all people. Escaped slaves could live freely. There is no army rape or enslavement. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that absolutely amazing? All right. Look to the right side of your notes. Let's get a grasp on Greco-Roman slavery because the, the, the classical slavery is slightly different from the ancient world slavery and it's the background of the New Testament. Okay, I know, I know. I know you're dying. Some of you just hate history, right? And you're like, all I hear is Charlie Brown's teacher. Blah, 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 right? Okay, I understand. Just take a breath, okay? I, I'm, I cut so... You wouldn't believe how many pages I cut out of that. I just, um, it. it I'm just trying to give you the bare bones because you cannot understand the text without the context, okay? Take a breath. You all right? Well, you're no good. You like history. Okay, you, you, you all right? Okay. Okay, all right. Now, let's go to, let's go to the right side. The, the Greco-Roman ideas about slavery are, are behind the New Testament. By the way, the, the Greco-Roman ideas of slavery developed out of this middle column, the, the normal world idea of slavery. Our old pal Doug Greenwald um, gives, I think, the best description of Roman slavery I've ever read. I've used this before. I'll probably use this quote again. It's so well done. Doug, who was on our staff as a visiting scholar at one point, he says this, when Rome conquered your part of the world... You became a Roman subject, but without rights. So if you were a bookkeeper, a physician, a teacher in a conquered territory, you knew becoming a Roman slave was the only pathway for you to eventually buy your freedom and become a freedman. Freedmen, by the way, had complete Roman citizen rights. 
So it's not surprising that many professionals in conquered lands willingly sold themselves into Roman slavery as the only pathway to Roman citizenship and freedom, close quote. So for the upper and middle classes, Roman slavery was a lot more like what we would call in our country's history indentured servitude. It's not like racial slavery, like, like the Egyptian slavery of Israel. It was all about business. It wasn't about a lesser concept of humanity. Classical Western slavery was certainly not desirable, but, but you could earn your freedom. In fact, slavery was, as Doug says, a stepping stone quite often to a better life. You see this in the Bible. There's a, there's a whole book of the Bible called Philemon that's about a slave named Onesimus. And, and it's somebody who is becoming a freedman, just like this. Uh, Josephus, one of the great historians of this era, of the New Testament era, he was a Jewish slave who sold himself into slavery and became a freedman. However... There was another darker side to Roman slavery. This began at the late Roman Republic and continued through the empire. Uh, here's what happened. As Rome began its, uh, its many Greek wars that kind of came on it, there was a glut of, of incoming slaves, and many of them were from the uneducated lower classes. And so, so these people were treated differently. Um, for the first time in history, slavery changed a little bit. They were abused as miners, field hands, prostitutes, gladiators. This was a shift away from the, from the Greek and Roman uh, way. Those slaves could still buy their freedom. They could, but life was very hard and, and oppressive, sometimes brutal. This led to revolts, the most serious of which was led by a guy named Spartacus, 73 BC, Rome itself was threatened by these slaves, many of them gladiators, who rose up to try and provoke a civil war. This is how big a deal it was. The greatest army in all of human history, it took them two years to put down Spartacus's revolt. Uh, by the way, haven't you always wanted to be Spartacus? On the count of three, everybody say, I am Spartacus. One, two, three. I am Spartacus. Very good. Oh, it's well done. All right. All that takes us to slavery in the New Testament. Here's where we face the accusation that the atheists make. Uh, modern atheism says Christianity condones slavery. They're actually correct. I, I know. They are right, just not in the way they think. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians in your New Testament. Turn over there. Leave Exodus, go to Philippians, right after Galatians and Ephesians, before Colossians. Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, we learn the most shocking piece of news ever related. I mean that. There is nothing in human history as shocking as this. Jesus chose slavery. Jesus, Messiah, God, Lord, he chose to become a slave. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And for today's purposes, we're going to skip down to verse 7. Instead of claiming his rights as God, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The verbiage here is very important. The Greek uh, doulos. Doulos is the key word used here of Jesus. It's what we translate servant. Um, a, a doulos is a slave. It is a slave who willingly bonds himself or herself to a master. Jesus became the willing slave, the doulos of all humankind. Remember, this was penned when that third servile war of Spartacus was still very fresh in cultural memory. Do you know how that war ended? Six thousand slaves were crucified along the Appian Way going into, into Rome. Jesus put himself in that position on purpose. Think, think through what this means. 
Jesus became a slave and was ultimately crucified, not because he was poor, but because we are. He chose slavery, not because he was conquered, but because we are. He became the doulos of humanity so we could become the children of God. Through his resurrection, Jesus earned a way out of the slavery to death that is the, that is the, the reality of every human creature. And he did this because we cannot do so. All God's people said, amen. In that sense, oh yes, Christianity promotes slavery. Our Lord became a slave. I want you to quickly look at one other passage about Jesus the doulos. Listen to, to John 13. John 13. When Jesus had washed their feet, if you don't know the, if you don't know the scene, uh, upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus is um, preparing the disciples for the, the last supper that he's going to have before his crucifixion. Uh, he takes off his outer clothes. He uh, puts a towel around him and he washes. He does the work of a slave. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you speak rightly since that's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger not greater than the one who sent him. Jesus takes the role of a slave and washes the feet of his followers. He does so, look at the, look at the text, he does so without abdicating his roles as Lord and rabbi. And here we see the heart of New Testament slavery. It is a willful choice that does not alter a person's calling or influence. And verses 15 and 16 there take us to the next idea. Jesus' followers, they're all slaves. We are commanded to follow Jesus' example. We who are saved by trust in Jesus are supposed to follow him and act as slaves to others just as he did. The term doulos is not just applied to Christ. It's applied to Christians. The New Testament addresses this in depth. Romans chapter 6 reminds us that before we believed in Jesus, every single Christian was a servant already, but we were a servant only of sin. Romans 6, but thank God that although you used to be slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to what, everybody? Righteousness. We were unwitting slaves to sin. That is the normal human condition. Our appetite was always fixated on sin. No matter how hard we might try to break free, we always were yanked back to bow down at the feet of sin. But those who trust in Jesus, they're set free from that. They're enslaved to righteousness. Instead, they are yoked to God's good. All God's people said, however, in the here and now, Christians still have to choose. In the words of Nobel laureate Bob Dylan, you've got to serve somebody, right? Romans 16 shows that after belief in Jesus, Christians can still, this is, this is sad but true, until Jesus returns, we can still choose to serve sin. Go to Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Now, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learn. Avoid them because such people do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. The Greek doulos is significantly used of Jesus' followers. Each of these texts and, and many, many others tell us that Christians are to be slaves of righteousness following Jesus' example. However, until everything is made new by Christ, we face a daily choice. We can serve sin, our own fleshly appetites, or we can serve Messiah Jesus. I, 
I can do what I want. I can do that. It may be evil. Or I can do what God tells me is right. I can take every thought captive in submission to Jesus as his doulos. Or I can just become another robot thinking whatever Google or my favorite conspiracy group tells me to think. Right? Again, Dylan summarized it really well. In his, in his poem, Gotta Serve Somebody, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Now, with that counterculture system established, the New Testament deals with Roman-era slavery. And Scripture declares, this is awesome, Scripture declares that believing slaves are beloved brethren. Read with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, you join me in the underlined part, starting at verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. Don't let earthly categories dominate your thinking. Um, Concern in verse 21 is an unfortunate translation because of the way it sounds in modern slang. Uh, Meli is the word in the Greek. It's a... It's taken from a root verb that means spinning around. Uh, and so it came to be used for anxiety. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Spinning around, anxiety, right? Don't let your head spin around and around and around until you get all anxious about humans and their bad ideas about humanity. If God provides a way out of your terrible job, or, or in this case in Rome, if God supplies a means to pay off your slavery, go for it by all means. But regardless, no, that earthly position does not define you. All Christians are one body together. Each is spiritually free, and each is the doulos of Jesus. Did you know this? In the early churches, we have many records of slaves who served as elders. They were slaves, and they were elders of their churches. And the people in those churches submitted to them. And by the way, one of the worst lies that is believed reflexively by people these days is in the first two centuries, most all Christians were were very poor. It's the exact opposite, in fact. Every record we have shows that it was the uppermost classes who turned wholesale to belief in, in Jesus Christ. So these are very wealthy, powerful people who are submitting to their elder who is a slave. There's just one more thing we need to cover regarding the New Testament and slavery. Um, Slave trading is named as a sin in the New Testament. First Timothy chapter 1. We know the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murders, for the sexually immoral, males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. Aren't you glad we're not like that list, right? Very few of us here are murderers. Matt, you haven't murdered anyone in days, right? But that may be the wrong, that is the wrong way to look at that list. Look, all that list is doing is showing every single human's need for Christ. These aren't listed to say, well, some people are better than others. These are enumerated to show that all people need the gospel of God, the salvation that is in Christ alone. Let's do this. If you have ever lied, raise your hand. You've ever lied, raise your hand. Raise them high. Raise your hand. You're lying now. Thank you. Okay, hands down. All right, when we raised our hands, what did we show? We showed that we need Jesus because we, we are separated by sin just like everyone else. Amen? 
Now, the big deal for today's purpose is this. Slave trading is named here as a sin. It's, it's one thing if people used Roman law to enter slavery to further their life. It's entirely another for human beings to be sold as property. Again, this was a unique voice in the classical world. Christianity clearly does not condone slavery. You know who gives the perfect, the perfect image for this? William Shakespeare in his play, The Merchant of Venice. Let me, let me tell you the climactic moment in The Merchant of Venice. D spoiler alert. Okay, it's been out 400 years. I think you've had time to read it. All right. <clears throat> There's a guy named Antonio. Antonio, yeah, get, get on it. There's a guy named Antonio, and he, he's a really likable, enjoyable guy. He's a businessman, and, and he goes into business uh, with a guy. A moneylender gives him money for this big expedition to ship his goods. The moneylender's name is Shylock. By the way, Shylock is one of the most intriguing characters in all of literature. Um, he's, he's in many ways a typical uh, anti-Semitic depiction of a Jewish, you know, moneylender. But, but Shylock also is likable in a way and the most blistering anti-racism speech in all of Shakespeare's writing is put in the mouth of Shylock. So anyway, really interesting guy. So Shylock makes a contract uh, with Antonio. Now the reason you see them in court here is horribly Antonio's ships all went down at sea and he lost everything so he couldn't pay back the loan. So Shylock drags him into the Venetian court and, uh, and before the judge he's going to fulfill the contract. Does anybody remember what it was that, that Antonio had to pay if he couldn't pay back Shylock? Does anybody remember? W yes, what? A pound, that's right, a pound of flesh. That's where that phrase comes from. So Shylock is all excited because he is going to take his pound of flesh from Antonio, whom he just abhors, all right? Uh, this lady right here is Portia. Uh, Portia is a brilliant woman. She really loves Antonio. She dresses up as a man in, in this particular painting, not very well. And, um, and, and, and she comes in as a barrister to defend Antonio. Now, she starts out by pleading with Shylock, please, Shylock, please have mercy. Shylock says, no, and he grabs his knife and he goes to take his pound of flesh, right? As he's about to pierce Antonio's chest with the knife, Portia cries out, stop! You can't do that. He goes, yes, I can. The judge says, yes, he can. And she says, no, no. Now, the contract says a pound of flesh, but it doesn't say anything about blood. So if you do blood, you're exceeding the contract. And according to Venetian law, Portion points out, if you take the blood from a Venetian citizen, you are liable to death yourself. Yeah, I know. Ooh. And, and that, so that's what Shylock does. He's like, in fact, in fact, the scene ends with Shylock walking away saying, I am not well. That's what he says. It's fantastic. Okay. That's the setup. Now, let me show you what Rebecca McLaughlin says about slavery from the Merchant of Venice. This is from her book, Confronting Christianity. The New Testament argues against slavery the same way Portia argues against Antonio's death, by cutting the legs out from under it. Jesus inhabited the slave role. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ, loves a runaway slave, that's Onesimus, as his very heart, and insists that slave and free are equal in Christ. What does that do? You, do you see what the New Testament's done? It says, okay, you can have your pound of flesh, but you can't have any blood, right? With, with no room for superiority, exploitation, or coercion, but rather brotherhood and shared identity, the New Testament created a tectonic tension that would erupt in the abolition of slavery, close quote. Now, I know, I know what you're thinking. In your mind, you're asking, in your, in your imitation of Jer Jeremy Irons, 
one of the great voices of our time. Don't you love Jeremy Irons' voice? Uh, he played Antonio in a BBC production of The Merchant of Venice. It was really well done, so it lost a lot of money. Um, and, and he, I mean, a lot of money. So he said this, so how did all this flesh out? <laughs> Pun intended, get it? Um, how, how did these New Testament Christians do at living this out? Jeremy Irons. Thank you for asking, Jeremy. Let me explain. I love that voice. Let, let me explain. No, take too long. Let me sum up. They changed the world. The Christian impact on slavery was felt almost immediately. By the 50s AD, Roman law was changing. And over the next 100 years, the use of slaves declined precipitously and slaves gained protection after protection, right after right. By the 5th century AD, Christians had abolished slavery across almost all of the Mediterranean world. Isn't that awesome? Do you know how they did it? They started out by eliminating sex trafficking. That's what they attacked first. And then after that, they spread that freedom of slaves to all other people groups. It was just awesome, but it didn't last. Islam arose in the East, reignited slavery, especially in Syria and Africa. Here's the saddest part of the whole story. The Eastern Orthodox capital of Constantinople, which, which was supposedly Christian, uh, they actually got involved in the act and went back on what they had been before, and they started running the largest slave market in the world. That slave market made so much money for the emperor in Constantinople that the, the Byzantines kept that market open for almost a thousand years, and it funded much of the empire. By the way, global context at this point, it was during this time, this same period, uh, slavery was rampant across the world. Indigenous tribes in Australia, Africa, and the Americas sold each other as slaves on a regular basis. Um, just to close out the world so we see the whole globe, the, the same time period, Tang Dynasty in China, uh, they had an interesting take on slavery. They, they forbid slavery for, uh, for free citizens, which was pretty cool. That was new to China. And by the way, that may, we don't know, we don't have enough records, but that may have been the efforts uh, of a number of Christian missionaries that we know were working there at that time. They still allowed people to sell themselves into slavery. Sadly, they robustly promoted sex slavery and foreign peoples could be enslaved at will. Okay, meanwhile, back in the Western Mediterranean, things got even worse. Uh, this group of people that we call Vikings arose and they reignited slavery in the farthest part of the Western Mediterranean, especially in Britain. Horribly, the church in Rome, which admittedly was not necessarily biblical or Christian, but the church in Rome helped that process. I hate telling this part of the story. By making slavery, going back on what they had done 500 years before, the church in Rome made slavery legal again. I don't have time to go into it, but that led to something called serfdom. That opened the door to, to peasants being tied to the land as slaves. Very, very dark, horrible story. You know how bad things had gotten? After how wonderful it was when the Christians eradicated slavery in the Mediterranean, things had now gotten back to as bad as they ever were under the Roman Empire. But then something amazing happened. Once again, Christians began to push for an end to slavery. Christian monarchs like Louis X and Elizabeth I they listened to a bunch of preachers, and they abolished slavery. And, get this, they abolished serfdom as well. The Protestant Reformation helped accelerate this freedom. By the late medieval period, slavery in the eastern and western Mediterranean was once again disappearing. In fact, slavery was fading everywhere around the globe except in the late medieval period, except in America, in Russia, and in Africa. In Africa, <clears throat> it was a sad story. Arab on black and black on black slavery was, 
was becoming more and more widespread. But it didn't just stay in Africa. The evil practice jumped out once again. What happened in 1492? Somebody, what happened in 1492? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Very good. The New World was discovered. When the New World was discovered, something heinous happened. These Western European governments that had, that had once again outlawed slavery, outlawed serfdom, they jumped back in and they jumped in with both feet as a way to expand their power. In fact, things became so awful when modern slavery began to, to exploit and for the first time since the Israelites in Egypt, slavery was tied to race and it was permanent and it was hereditary and it was illegal. Modern slavery took us all the way back to that worst slavery ever in human history. The world became exactly what Egypt had been to Israel. And tragically, some Christians whose forebears had eliminated slavery in Rome and had eliminated slavery in medieval Europe, they actually became supporters of the practice. Most of them, of course, were just caught up in the spirit of their age. I'm not making excuses. I'm just being honest. Here's maybe the saddest example. Jonathan Edwards, the most gifted theologian in America. He, who was the architect in many ways of the great awakening that changed world history, he owned slaves, and he wrote a defense of slavery. Edward's son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., was horrified by the illogic of his father's thinking. When Edwards Jr. became the president of Princeton University, he ardently preached abolition. He loved his father, but he pulled no punches saying Edward Sr. was wrong. Thank goodness we're not like Jonathan Edwards Sr. There are no ways in which our descendants are going to be embarrassed about any moral aspects of our lives, right? There is nothing that we're doing lifestyle-wise that will ever be an embarrassment. Kids, I want you to look carefully at that. Your parents dressed like that. They purposefully, willfully did that to their hair. <clears throat> They're still in therapy about it. All right. Jonathan Edwards Jr., recognized that his father, brilliant as he was, was wrong about slavery. But that doesn't mean he just threw out everything that his father ever had to say. This is really wise. He said, and I quote, they were men of their times and couldn't imagine applying scripture cleanly to a practice so completely accepted by all. 60 years later, Frederick Douglass said a very similar thing in his book. Another quote from his book, what I have said respecting and against religion has no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is a necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Close quote. Thankfully, you ready for this? Christians like, like Jonathan Edwards Jr., Christians like, like, um, like <clears throat> Frederick Douglass, they once again carried the day. They finally got the Western world back to where it had been two times before. And just like the prior successes, this was a Christian effort. I want to introduce to you four of our forebears who made a big difference in that abolition of modern slavery. And, and I'm going to select four that I don't think most people know, but they really are remarkable. John Simcoe was the first governor of what we now call uh, Ontario, Canada. 
He, he founded the city of Toronto. Look what Simcoe said when he was made the, uh, the governor of, British, of the uh, British Constitution over Canada. He said, the principles of the British Constitution do not admit to that slavery of which Christianity condemns. The moment I assume the government of Upper Canada, which is Ontario, under no modification will I assent to a law that discriminates by dishonest policy between natives of Africa, America, or Europe, close quote. Isn't that awesome? Josiah Henson is another guy you probably ought to know. He escaped as slavery in Virginia, made his way to Canada where he settled, and he was the least bitter human on the planet. He became a very popular Christian leader, and he, all his life he had one thing he said all the time, calling all people, all people together to unity in Jesus Christ. Francis Wayland was a Baptist pastor. He was a scientist. He was a prison reformer, president of Brown University, and he was an ardent abolitionist. He had more to do with the area you love with New England. He had more to do with New England becoming strongly abolitionist than any other person. Really amazing. The, these Christians were used to eliminate modern slavery. And I want to give you one more. Thomas Johnson. Thomas Johnson escaped slavery in America. Long, long story. Eventually made his way to England. He and his wife Henrietta just showed up <laughs> at the home of the most famous pastor in the world, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Just showed up at their home. Spurgeons invited them in. And the Spurgeons spent hours just listening to them, asking them questions, learning about their stories. They bonded. At the end of the night, the, the Johnsons played on the Spurgeons' piano their favorite Negro spiritual, Steal Away Home. By the way, it's a great book about that, really, really beautiful. The two families became friends. Uh, Charles Spurgeon made a way for Thomas to enter Spurgeon's seminary because Johnson had had one dream all his life, and that was to become trained in the Bible and become a missionary to Africa. And Charles Spurgeon helped make sure that he had that dream. Johnson went to uh, the area we now call Cameroon, and he was very successful starting churches, sharing Jesus Christ. In, in summary, as he had done before, God used Christians to change the world and stand up against the evil of slavery. Surely you realize that still needs to happen. Tell me your generational hubris is not so strong that you think that we've actually conquered this evil forever. What makes you think you're so much greater than our forefathers? It was conquered in Rome. The world was different, and then it came back. It was conquered by our, whom we really looked down on, our medieval forebears. It was, and it came back. It's conquered now. Do you really think it won't try to come back? I got a question for you. Are you willing to be a part of the never-ending, till Jesus returns and makes everything you, are you willing to be a part of the never-ending fight against slavery? Yes or no? All right, then there's three things I recommend that you and I need to do. Number one, have the attitude of Jesus. Be a doulos. Die to self. Listen, if I just act under the spirit of my age, I am missing the chance to have a lasting impact. I must choose every day, and it is a daily choice, to live as a bondservant of righteousness and Jesus Christ. All God's people said, Number two, serve in missions, just like Thomas Johnson and Charles Spurgeon who sent him. Fund mission trips, go on mission trips, support missionaries. In your everyday conversations, share the good news of Jesus Christ. Number three, fight slavery. Pray, pray about human trafficking. Volunteer with a group like International Justice Mission. And when we have opportunity to, to help a rescued slave... Now, it's not something that's very public, 
but it has happened here before and it will probably happen again. When we have opportunity to help a rescued slave in this church, your pastors are going to ask you for things they need, for money, for goods. Give generously, okay? Fight. And here, here I think is the most important way that you and I can fight slavery. Refuse to objectify any people, any person in your own heart. Refuse to play racism games. They're like reindeer games. They're based on physical attributes, and they don't work. Refuse. The Bible and Christianity do not condone slavery. It's quite the opposite, in fact. And yet each generation of Christians has to rise up against this continual evil that views human beings as objects. Let's pray that we will meet the challenge in our day. Pray with me. Father, I pray for strength in myself and my brothers and sisters in combating slavery. Let us be like our forebears. And we're not, we're not throwing stones at anybody, but let us be like the ones who chose to step out of the spirit of their age and look at the text. Let us be people of grace. By the way, speaking of grace, I pray for anyone, anyone who is studying with me, wherever they may be, that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I, I ask you to draw them to you. Listen, friend, Jesus died on that cross paying for the sin price you couldn't pay. He became a slave, not because he was poor, but because we are. And then he conquered death. He rose from the grave so that if you trust him, you get to follow him. You have a daily choice to follow him in everlasting life, and you are guaranteed forever as a child of God. You told me who I am. I'm a child of God. If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, do so right now. Believe on him. you just trusted Jesus as Savior and you're in the auditorium, raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Good. If you're online, make a comment to your host. Let them rejoice with you. Amen. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for these brothers and sisters that we will have strength in combating slavery of all types and all forms, and that we will do so by serving as slaves of Christ. We cannot do one without the other. In Jesus' name, amen.